Wow, were you here last week? What a fantastic way to start the year. Scott's message I was able to hear after the fact, and if that doesn't get you going on the right foot, nothing will. Now we return to our progression of learning because it's wiser to learn. And we are doing it this year by walking through the life of Joseph, the Hebrew prince of Egypt, letting his life reveal for us the absolutes that we have in life. And then we are exploring those to find out how they would apply in our lives at different levels of convictions and preferences that can help us act out what we truly believe. So let me just to review, if I may, some major principles that we've looked at. We began in October by considering pride and privilege in the beginning of Joseph's story. What you're born with. And that affects us from as close as our own differences between each other as, and as far-reaching as human slavery. Then in November, we looked at this major principle of purity and passion. What you must live with in understanding human sexuality and how we respond to those who differ from us on this issue. December gave us the opportunity to unwrap God's message in the first person. And what He would say to you if He stood before you. Because we exist to touch all people with God's message. And we looked at what that message would be in the first person. Now we come to January and our third principle that I'm calling faithfulness and failure coming out of the end of chapter 39 of Genesis and chapter 40 that we just read. Faithfulness and failure, what God wants facing what you cannot control. Now we find Joseph in prison. Just how long was that anyway? Let's take a couple of minutes and study the time frame. If you go back to Genesis chapter 37, verse 2, it says Joseph was a young man of 17 when, and it goes on to tell the story of he and his brothers in the robe of many colors and his preferential treatment and his pride and his privilege. And So he was 17. When we come to chapter 39, we have the story of him in Potiphar's house. There's obviously some time here, weeks at least, Probably a little longer. He finds favor over time and gains gains responsibility over the entire household. Then chapter 40, verse 1 says, Some time later, we just read. Here too, it's not very specific, but he's been thrown into prison. There's been time to prove his trustworthiness, and then that requires some time beyond that. So there must have been some time Uh, that took place at the beginning of chapter 40. Now, if we jump to the end of the story, farther down, chapter 41, verse 46, it says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What happened in chapter 41 probably only takes day or maybe, well, less than that, because verse 14 says, quickly he was brought from the dungeon, shaved and clothed. And the chapter starts by saying, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had his dreams. So, let me make some educated guesses here. I'm not good with math, you know that, but I, and so I kind of rounded some numbers um, to make it easier for me. 
We don't know how long he was in Potiphar's house, but it couldn't have been for many years. The wife noticed him and was set on getting him. So let's just say it took a couple of years. And he's 20 when he lands in prison. He's 17. When it all starts with his brothers, he gets sold into slavery. He's in Potiphar's house. Probably was even less than that, but let's call it three years. He's 20. He's 30 when he gets out of prison. We read that. That makes him 28 when he interprets the baker's and the cupbearer's dreams. That means that he sat for 10 years at least in prison and probably more. I just had to round some numbers, you know, to keep it easy. He was probably there more like 12. Genesis 40, verse 1. Some time later. It's years. This poor man, this poor young man, he should be pitied, shouldn't he? He's faithful in all of his responsibilities. However, nothing seems to be working out for him in his situation, and it remains unchanged in spite of the unfair and unjust reason Why he finds himself there? Should he be pitied? The story doesn't seem to waste much time there. What's the story about today? As we read this whole chapter. Is it about the cupbearer? Is it about the baker? What happened to Joseph? Is he even still in the picture? He interprets the dreams, but... The most profound things that we can mention about Joseph in this chapter are the bold parentheses the story has at the beginning and the end. Verse 1, some time later, and we know that was years. And then verse 23, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Thanks for nothing. Silence. And time, a long time, are the protagonists in the story today. Now, we know the end of the story and that what happened was essential to where God was to take Joseph, interpreting dreams so he could be called to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, so he could become the leader of Egypt to save Israel. But he didn't know that, did he? Is there a lesson in that? Does God have something to teach us in that? More than any of us ever want to know. In fact, in keeping with the lesson, I should promise you all kinds of truths to be gained out of this chapter, but then make you wait, say, ten years before I tell you. Would you appreciate that? You wouldn't have to come to church for ten years, but what if I said, go ahead, come back in twelve... And I'll let you know what there is to learn out of this. God does have something to teach us in silence and time and perhaps more than we might ever learn from anything else. Faithfulness and failure. Facing what you cannot control. This is about what God wants. You see, in our ability to attain our wants, we have not conquered our longings. But as we surrender to His wants, we will attain all He has for us. 
I wrote that in your notes so you can take it home and think about it. Let me expand on that. In all of our ability to attain all that we want, we have not conquered the deepest longings that we have. But in our surrender to what He wants, we continue the process of attaining all that He has for us. This is not new. It's the oldest story on earth. Phil Yancey in his book on prayer says this, Most of my struggles in the Christian life circle around two things, two themes. Why God doesn't act the way I want God to and why I don't act the way God wants me to. So it all reduces down to this. Who is going to have their way? Me or God? In this perpetual struggle is a hidden discipline. Not just an answer, a discipline. We want an answer. God wants a discipline. And if we're talking about discipline, the very nature of that word, word it means that we are not going to naturally want to do this. We're probably not going to like this. This is going to be work. This is going to be hard. And this should be life-changing. Jeremiah 18 reads, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you a message. So I went to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he had shaping, that he was shaping from the clay was, was marred in his hand. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. In this passage, there is a question and there is a declaration. One is just true. You are clay in the hands of God. God is supremely sovereign. That is redundant. But it's necessary. Because we resist it so. God is God. And we are not. And yet, His intentions are good. What's the first thing He would say to you if He stood before you and told you His message? I love you. We're afraid that His intentions are not good. And that maybe I did something that would cause him to not love me. There is nothing you can do that would make God love you more. And there is nothing you can do that would make God love you less. 
His ways are above your ways. You do not get to be the potter or his advisor. And Jeremiah is so powerful because he's not just the conduit of this message. He's a living example of it. You can thank God that you were not Jeremiah. Really. Listen to Ray Steadman. Jeremiah lived in the last days of a decaying nation. He was the last prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. If you recall, and if you, maybe you don't even know, but in the Old Testament where you get into those really clean white pages that nobody ever reads that are filled with these prophets that are just always calling down all these judgments on this people. It's a long painful story of a rebellious people who just continue to go grow farther and farther away from their God. They end up dividing in half and the upper part of the northern part of that kingdom is judged first and then finally there's some hope that maybe the southern kingdom would rally and return to God and they have their good days but they slip back again and finally they too are punished and taken away into captivity. Jeremiah's ministry covered about 40 years, and during all of this time, the prophet never once saw any signs of success in his ministry. His message was one of denunciation and reform, and the people never obeyed him. The other prophets saw in some measure the impact of their message on the nation, but not Jeremiah. He was called to a ministry of failure, and yet he was enabled to keep going for 40 long years and to be faithful to God to accomplish God's purpose, to witness to a decaying nation. What does God want? He wants you to recognize that you are clay in His hands. How? By answering the question that God poses to you. Can I not do with you as this potter does? Jeremiah 18.4 says, but the pot was, he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Silence and time, a long time, are the protagonists in the story today. And we're going to discover what that means throughout this month. Is there a lesson in that? Does God have something to teach us in that more than any of us really want to know? God does have something to teach us in silence and time. Perhaps more than we might ever learn from anything else. Faithfulness and failure. Facing what God, what, facing what you cannot control. This is about what God wants. Let me give you a few principles that I think we can take immediately out of this. First of all, God wants faithfulness because He's faithful. Not because you are, but because He is. And He wants you to become like Him. There's an absolutely beautiful verse in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 13. It says, If we are faithless, He will remain faithful. Does that make any sense? Wouldn't it be if we're faithless, then He's not going to be faithful to us? No, it says, 
If we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he cannot disown himself. He loves you. He counts you as his own. He wants faithfulness because he wants you to be like him. And we see it in the story. Joseph was faithful even though he was unhappy with the situation. In verse 4, he attended to them. He's still doing his job. And we see this character trait of perseverance. He did not stop doing what he knew he was supposed to do. It wasn't much, but he was going to do it. We want to quit because we don't know what we're supposed to do next. Don't worry about what you're supposed to do next. Worry about what you're supposed to do now. That's what he did. He stayed faithful to what he knew he could do then and there. God also wants submission because he's God. (laughs) Because he's God and you're not. There is an absence of bitterness here. God is still in the place of honor in Joseph's knee-jerk reactions. In verse 8, when they ask him to interpret the dreams, the first thing he says is, don't interpretations belong to God? Doesn't claim the ability as his own? His immediate knee-jerk reaction is, listen, he's the one that's in charge here. And even verses in 14 14 and 15 where he pleads with them to, to remember him before Pharaoh, I believe he makes this plea. He's honest in his feelings and what he sees is the facts, but he's not holding this against God. He's still yielding, which I think proves a point, which reveals the discipline that God is teaching. God wants, thirdly, devotion because you're his forged here is an acceptance of the situation. We see that at the end of chapter 39 where it says that the Lord's hand was with Joseph. It gave him success over all that he did. He seemed to accept the circumstances and the good intentions of God. That God had something better in store. That he was going to have a deeper experience because of this. No, he didn't like it. But he was still fully devoted to the one who loved him. With each of these principles that I've offered you, or I'm offering you this year, I've promised you a Jesus point. Because we're not here just to talk about Joseph. Ultimately, we are here to lift the name of Christ. So where did Jesus, where does Jesus fit into this picture? Matthew chapter 4 in his temptation. In Matthew chapter 4, we kind of have 10 or 12 years condensed into 40 days. Again, God never asks us to face anything. He doesn't face himself. And here we have silence and time. 40 days of fasting and praying alone in the wilderness. Then he faces what all of us face in our natural temptations. 1 John 2.16 tells us, All that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. So he faces those in Matthew chapter 4. First of all, the lust of the flesh. He's hungry. So Satan comes and says, Here, turn these stones into bread. You can do it. He shows him what his eyes can see, the lust of the eyes. You see your God. Look, 
I'll put you up on this place. Throw yourself down. You're God. No one will hurt you. Nothing will happen to you. The lust of his eyes, of who he knew he was. And then the pride of life. Look, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms. You know what you deserve. Glory and praise. What was Jesus' answer? What God wants. Verse 4, I will be faithful to His word. That's what I live on. I will submit to Him, not me. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And I am devoted to Him and to Him only. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Again, as I referred to in your worship bulletin, good habits are not made on birthdays, nor Christian character at the new year. The workshop of character is everyday life. The uneventful and commonplace hour is where the battle is won or lost. What does God want? God wants you to recognize that He is the potter and you are the clay. He wants faithfulness because He is faithful, even when you're not. He wants submission because He is God and you are not. And He wants devotion because He considers you His own. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we so often utter these words saying that we put ourselves in your hands. Forgive us for so often treating that as if it were simply a a cuddle or a hug or a provision. We want to recognize your faithfulness. We want to express our submission. We want to renew our devotion. And so we do by putting ourselves and recognizing that we are but clay in the perfect potter's hands. And we ask that you would work and mold and move and shape and change and bring about what you desire which so often we question in times of silence and prolonged and protracted seeming distance of you. Lord, would you renew in us a right spirit and create in us new hearts that willingly allow you to work and to mold and to make us all that you desire. For truly, you are the potter and we are the clay.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you take your hymnals with me?